0: Looking for a unique gift, a new piece of art for your collection, or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi, my name is David McLean, and I'm the creator of this podcast. If you're listening for the first time, you may want to go back and start with the first one. That's why the first one is called One, and this one is called Three. It's just one of those things. However, if you just want to check it out, and that's fine, I can tell you that Keith Quick is a time traveler who's lost, and that the island of San Tiempo is, well, an island full of time travelers. That's it for right now. I appreciate your support. The news is next.
1: you're listening to wxyz live from the island of Santiago, and this is the time travelers news and world report time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline i'm fergus mccartney today's approximate aggregate date is the 10th of e-may on the island's new 15-month calendar now here's the post-apocalyptic report The Intergalactic Boy Scouts are holding their 21st annual Antigrav Pinewood Derby this Sunday on the apex of the island. The hill formerly known as Mount Everest. The winner is the boy whose Antigrav Derby vehicle drifts the farthest out to sea. Last year's winner set a new record by going over a kilometer out into the ocean. Unfortunately, the vehicle was not recovered. The Athens Touring Company will be mounting a production of the Oedipus Trilogy, starting with Oedipus at Colonus on June the 21st. Why they're starting with Oedipus at Colonus is a bit of a mystery since it's the third one in the trilogy. Writer-director Sophocles was quoted as saying, Chronology is for suckers. Protesters lined up in front of the new Santiago Town Hall and are protesting new regulations forcing the cancellation of the popular Killing Hitler three-day mini-break. William Easter is leading the protest and was quoted as saying, If we can't kill Hitler, what's the fun of being a time-traveler? A town council spokesman told the press that unfortunately, since Hitler died the day after he was married, breaking into his bunker would violate the code of conduct about disturbing a married couple on their wedding night. Mayor Kronos was hopeful that a compromise could be reached. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming.
0: And now we present the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time. Theater of Kings So far in his 21 years, Jack Cassidy had managed a fairly large number of unusual professions in his life, He'd been a street urchin, a pirate, and a student at Cambridge University. Now he was standing on the bow of a tiny ship, wondering if the dragon flying ahead of them could see the English coastline yet. He wondered if the dragon had any plans of burning villages or eating princesses or any of the things that they do in fairy tales. Now that he thought of it, they didn't really do those things. Mostly what they seemed to do was end up taking a sword in the chest. That was the interesting part about a dragon, at least in the stories. Right now the most interesting thing about the dragon was, well, its existence. I suppose dragons must do all the awful things before the story begins, he thought. Or at any rate, the heroes always think that they've done them. Jack wondered if you could sum up a person or a dragon by describing all of the worst things in their life. He wondered if that was fair. By that measurement, he might be described as a pretty bad person. He'd been a pirate, after all. But it wasn't the kind of life you graduated to after being an altar boy. If you took him at his worst, he supposed he was no better than a dragon. Of course, if you took him at his best, he was a scholar, a gentleman, and a young man with a promising future. He wondered what end of the spectrum his new friend might have been on. So? Keith Quick asked, trying to sound casual. Where are you from? England, Jack said. Although I suspect that isn't really what you're asking. No, Keith agreed. When were you born? The year of our Lord, 1795, Jack admitted. How about you? The 20th century, Jack answered. How long have you been here? Long enough to know that I'm not going to find a copy of the London Times for sale when I get across the channel, Jack said. How long have you been here? A year, Keith said. I fell out of a hole in the sky. I would have been killed if the dragon hadn't caught me. I was tossed into the hole by some thugs who told me that it was for my own good. No idea why. Thank you for saving my life. I've been trying to find safe passage across the channel for days now. There are armies assembling all up and down the French coast. This was the first town that looked peaceful. I thought I was making headway until they brought out the torches. Armies, Keith repeated. Strangers tend to be unwelcome these days, no matter how good their intentions are, Jack grumbled. Keith let out the rope adjusting the sail. I don't suppose you have a time orb handy, do you? he asked. Jack gave what was probably the worst possible answer. What exactly would that be? he asked. Keith Quick looked away toward the horizon. It's a silver orb with three dials in the middle of it and an infinity symbol on the top. It would get us home. Although I suppose we would have to find a way to fly to make it work. Jack shook his head. Never heard of it. Keith nodded. I thought not. A pity. Nowhere in the conversation did the subject of the one thing they had in common come up. Jack had once been in love with Keith's wife. They didn't come up for the most pedestrian of all reasons. It simply never occurred to either one of them that they might have a mutual acquaintance. When you meet someone a thousand years before your birth in a foreign country and are thrown together in life or death circumstances, it doesn't occur to you to send each other a friend request on social media and see if maybe you've been running in the same circles. However, both men were thinking about Alice as they crossed the channel for more or less the same reason. They both reflected that when they arrived in England, she wasn't going to be there. Jack crossed to the back of the ship and readjusted the stuntsail. You're a yank, he said. It wasn't a question. Jack's eyes hardened just slightly. It occurred to Keith that it was entirely possible that where Jack was from, the War of 1812 was still going on, and the Americans were the enemy. Even if they were, though, he was probably going to need a friend. You know, in America, Keith observed, nobody really uses the term yank unless you're a right fielder. Jack, being English and born in the 18th century, didn't catch this reference. As you wish, since no one will discover America for another thousand years, I guess that makes you the first. Keith smiled. Perhaps I should declare myself president. It wasn't clear whether Jack knew what an American president was, but he seemed to take the term in stride. So... Are dragons an American animal? Do they live out where the buffalo roam? That would explain a few things. Keith shook his head. I met my scaly friend in the Sahara when I arrived. I thought the point of dragons was that you were supposed to kill them, Jack admitted. You seem to have developed a rapport with this one. Keith leaned against the sail of the boat and nearly knocked himself into the channel. He saved my life, and we were headed in the same direction. I guess that's the kind of thing that friendships are built on, regardless of the scaliness of one's skin. Jack stared out at the dragon, flapping his wings on the horizon. I always dreamed of seeing one when I was a boy. I thought they weren't real. I don't think they are, Keith said. At least, they aren't where we're from. Even though their births were separated by over a century, it was a tremendous relief for both men to be able to talk to another person who understood what they'd been through. Time travel can be a lonely existence, especially if you get off the beaten time stream. Occasionally, it was nice to talk to someone who was at least aware of the existence of a newspaper and a cup of tea. Jack adjusted a sail and gave Keith some instructions on the proper way to hold the rudder. Whatever his other qualifications were, Jack was an excellent sailor. The little boat was moving across the channel at a quick pace, and the water was pleasant. Keith couldn't help but think how much his life had improved since they had left the desert. For a while, when I got here, I thought I'd gone mad, Jack admitted. It took me weeks to figure out that I was in another century. For the longest time, I thought that the French economy had been hit by some kind of financial collapse and that Paris had been moved to another part of the country, presumably for tax purposes. Keith laughed. Did you really think that? Well, I was mad. I wasn't sure if it was the kind of thing I was supposed to think, Jack explained a little defensively. I hid out in the woods for the longest time, slowly starving to death. I'd taken to stealing food from the locals. Is that why they were burning you at the stake, Keith asked, for stealing food? Jack Cassidy shook his head in overlong bangs. No, he said. They figured out I was English, and they took me for a spy. I think they're planning on attacking Britannia. There was a pause, and then there was a silence, and then there was a pause again. What did you say that your name was, Keith asked? Jack, Jack said. Jack Cassidy. Keith shook his hand. Keith, quick, he said. By mid-afternoon, they were on the English coast. They dragged the boat onto the beach and surveyed the landscape. I have to admit, I haven't the foggiest idea where we are, Keith said. I don't think I know the English coast well enough to recognize a specific spot, except for the cliffs of Dover, which I suppose would be a god-awful place to dock a boat. We're in Portsmouth, Jack said. Or at any rate, we will be one day. Keith surveyed the rocky beach that they were landing on. Are you sure? he asked. Jack kicked the sand with a leathery boot. In another life, I was a pirate. I know. Keith quick took off his leather hat. His hair had gotten long over the last few months and his beard had grown out. I don't suppose that you happen to know where the nearest coffee shop would be, he asked in a tone that wasn't hopeful. Jack shook his head. In the millennium and a half, I'll be able to tell you where there's a cracking good inn. But at the moment, I couldn't say. The dragon slowly fluttered to the ground, its great leathery wings pushing enough air to make Keith Quick feel like a helicopter was landing beside him. There's a castle over there, beyond the next hill, the dragon informed him. It's an impressive enough-looking fortress, surrounded on three sides by water. I would imagine that it would be the envy of lords from far and wide, especially the one that is currently laying siege to it. Keith was sure that the dragon was telling the truth, but it was still the kind of truth that you had to have repeated before you could really appreciate it. Is a castle under siege? He repeated. The dragon nodded. That's a great host, perhaps a thousand men strong. They have archers, men on horses, ladders, and a trebuchet. Keith nodded. Do you want to get involved? He asked. The dragon smiled and scratched behind its ear. Isn't that what we do? He asked rhetorically. This suggestion caused Jack Cassidy to frown we could just head in the other direction he suggested it would be safer and smarter we could keith agreed if we'd done that when we saw you you'd be dead right now jack cassidy was a man convinced fair enough lead the way it would have been a beautiful day if it wasn't for the war The sky was that perfect blue that made you remember why people fall in love, and the sea air felt fresh and crisp in that way that implied the world was a good place and full of promise. No one in the party was sure of the date, but it must have been April. Keith couldn't help but think that a walk on the seaside would have made for a lovely vacation activity, except that they were about 1,400 years ahead of the tourist industry, and by the time that rolled around, they would have built little shops everywhere. Still, it was a lovely day, although the large army on the horizon had a way of making you feel that it really would be much better if you stayed inside with a cup of tea and a good book. If you have never seen a medieval army up close, you might find it a tad underwhelming, but not so underwhelming that you would feel comfortable if they surrounded your home and announced they were going to ruin the rest of your day. Without question, the finest, most spectacular medieval weapons and armor were made by the New Line Cinema Corporation in the early 21st century, If you were of the belief that the real-life version was going to compare favorably with the movie version, well, then you were destined to be disappointed. If you had taken a head count, the army would have probably numbered 1,000, and perhaps less than a fifth of that looked like they had ever seen a battle before. Most were more likely to be carrying a pitchfork rather than a sword, although there were a few bowmen and a handful of men on horseback in what looked like rusty armor. Keith, the dragon, and Jack sat momentarily watching from a distance. Jack had laid down flat in the grass before he realized that no matter what he did, the dragon would be clearly visible from about three miles away. It would only be a matter of time before they were spotted. They would need to act fast. The castle that they were surrounding was certainly a nice-looking one in that it was new. Neither Keith Quick nor Jack Cassidy had ever seen a medieval castle that was less than a thousand years old. Keith, having grown up in middle America, had seen decidedly fewer castles than Jack had, but still, he had been to the movies. As such, it was strange to see one that didn't look like a decrepit wreck. It was perched on a natural peninsula which seemed to disprove most theories of geology, and it stood proud and tall like a beacon on the hill. What do you think? the dragon asked. Do we take the side of the siege or of the men in the castle? The men in the castle, Keith answered definitively. Jack frowned. Are you sure? he asked. It seems like the siege side has the easy victory. We're not after victory, Keith pointed out. We're trying to make sure that neither side kills the other for the sake of a pointless war. How can you be sure it is a pointless war? Jack asked. "'It's a woe,' the dragon reasoned. "'Aren't they all pointless to some degree?' "'I have seen wars that were fought for good and great things,' Keith said. "'I have seen wars that were without question the most noble endeavors that humanity has undertaken.' "'But these are few and far in between.' Given the odds, I'd say this is probably a war over which of two men gets to wear a metal hat and sit on an uncomfortable high-backed chair. I think it would be best to break up the fight and have everybody go with their insides all in one piece, because I'm reasonably certain that they have wives and families who would be happier if they all came back that way. All right, Jack agreed. How do you want to do it? "'I could scare them off,' the dragon suggested. "'That would get rid of them pretty quickly.' "'I think that would scare them off for a day at best, "'and then they would go back to storming the castle,' Keith pointed out. "'I'd like something that would make them go home and stay home, if possible.' "'He turned and looked at the dragon. "'My friend, can you swoop around above the castle "'and maybe put on an air show for a while?' "'I suppose so,' the dragon said. "'Do you have a plan?' "'A plan?' Keith laughed. "'Of course not.' The dragon spread his wings gracefully. "'I will make sure every soldier tells the story to his grandchildren "'of how he saw a real dragon. "'At least every soldier except for the one that is going to get hit in the head "'with his own arrow as it comes crashing back to Earth. "'There's always one of those.' "'Keith nodded. "'It will have to do.' "'He patted Jack on the back. "'Come on,' he said.' You and I will have to get inside the castle. The dragon took to the skies with a tremendous flap of his wings, and the two men made their way down to the beach. The cliff that the castle was perched on was not the Dover Cliffs, but it was still a good fifty feet in the air and had been neglected by the opposing army as an obviously poor approach to the castle. Still, that didn't mean that it didn't have a certain tactical advantage to it, provided you were a good climber, and didn't have to worry about a group of arrows coming down on your head. What do you think? Keith asked, staring up at the cliff face. You're looking for a siege door, Jack said knowingly. Keith nodded. I wasn't sure that they really exist, he admitted. I've only seen them in the movies. Jack looked at him and frowned. What's a movie? Keith smiled. A motion picture. It's just like television, but without commercials. Jack took the sort of deep breath that some people find necessary when they are dealing with someone who is acting like a frustrating twit. Do you see anything? He said. Keith squinted up at the castle. He had grown up in America, so he had expected castles to be stony, decrepit structures that would protect you from bow and arrow attacks. He was surprised to discover that the walls of this particular castle were actually plastered and painted a lovely gleaming white. The idea that this made it seem warm or inviting in any way was disingenuous. Keith knew that he could meet a bloody end inside the castle. On the left-hand side, he said, there's a small oak door. All right, Jack said. What do we do next? We climb, Keith said with much more confidence than he felt. When you travel through time, you learn a lot of things. Right now, climbing up the cliff, Keith Quick was learning about siege doors. Specifically, he was learning that a siege door wasn't so much meant to be hidden as it was designed to be difficult to use as a method of attack. As Keith slowly made his way toward the top of the cliff, it had been made fundamentally clear by the wheeze in his lungs that if there were two guards waiting for him at the top, the only thing that Keith would really be able to do if they tried to kill him was to cough up phlegm at them and hope that they would be too disgusted to brandish their weapons. Still, he had a plan. He just hoped that no one was going to ask him to explain the specifics of the plan beforehand because he hadn't worked out all of the details just yet. "'Are you ready?' he asked Jack. Jack reached the narrow edge separating the castle from the cliff, holding a stitch in his side. "'Are you sure this door isn't guarded?' he asked. "'No.' "'Keith admitted. I'm pretty sure of the opposite of that. "'I was thinking that one of us might like to wait outside for a minute or two.' "'Why would we do that, exactly?' Jack asked. "'Because if the first one of us is killed in the first few seconds, "'then the other one of us could run off to distant lands "'and reflect on how to have a better life,' Keith said. "'Jack nodded. "'This was your idea,' he said. "'You go fast. "'Keith opened the door and entered the castle.' Apparently, the two men who were supposed to be guarding the siege door thought that seeing a dragon was too good an opportunity to miss, and Keith found himself in a dark, empty hallway with a low ceiling. "'It's empty!' he shouted to Jack, who stepped through the door, looking a little wide-eyed. "'How's your Latin?' Keith asked. "'I was at Cambridge before I ended up here,' Jack answered. "'They were rather insistent that the Roman Empire was coming back eventually.' Good, Keith said, because I doubt that anyone will speak English. No one in England will speak English, Jack asked Rolly. Strictly speaking, we're not in England either, Keith pointed out. They walked down the hall, and turning the corner, they ran into a guard. What? The guard yelled, pointing a spear at them. Calling him a guard and the weapon a spear involved a bit of artistic license. He was actually a young man in a t-shirt holding a wooden stick that had been sharpened to a point. The only nod to the boy being a professional soldier was a battered wooden shield that looked like he had inherited it from someone, and a heavy piece of metal on his head that had been hammered into the shape of a pith helmet. Other than that, the boy would have been perfectly dressed for a day at the beach, which Keith reflected. If his mission was successful, they might both be able to enjoy. Keith Quick and Jack Cassidy put their hands up in what would be the universal symbol of surrender once somebody got around to inventing the gun. The guard said something neither of them understood, but which was undeniably, Who are you? Keith said, good morning, in Latin, with the sort of friendly tone that implied that being threatened with a spear was a polite way to begin a conversation. We were hoping that you could take us to your king. The young man said something that Keith didn't catch. Keith wouldn't realize it until much later, but he had gotten very lucky. Since he was tall and spoke Latin, the boyish young guard assumed that he must be a nobleman. So he had told Keith that he would bring him to the king and give his majesty the honor of killing them himself. Much to his surprise, this made Keith grin from ear to ear. "'I think we're being taken to the Lord of the Castle,' Keith said in English to Jack Cassidy. "'Is that good?' Jack asked. "'Well, that was the point of the exercise,' Keith said. "'Whether it turns out to be good has yet to be seen.' ''You are absolutely rubbish at inspiring confidence,'' Jack pointed out. ''Yes, but I am inspired at working in a blind panic,'' Keith replied. The guard led them into a grim-looking courtyard where a group of shabbily dressed men and women were standing in the mud. They all had their backs turned and were staring up at the sky. It was easy to see what they were looking at. High above them, the dragon was swooping about in large figure eights. It's a sign, someone shouted in Latin. The enemy is destined to bring us to a violent end. How do you know it's not the other way round, another voice shouted. Maybe it's a sign for us that we're about to defeat him.
1: Does it make any sense,
0: a female voice said.
1: The dragon is on his coat of arms, isn't it? Of course it means he's going to win."
0: Yes, but that's what would make it a tragic irony, the other voice pointed out. As the dragon flew overhead, he
1: tragically met his end.
0: I'm not sure the fates really deal with irony in that way, someone observed. I wouldn't be too sure, Keith replied several people turned and looked at keith and jack they were all small skinny and looked scared a bald man in a blue coat pushed his way to the front of the crowd his boots were the only thing in the whole courtyard that looked new he was accompanied by a wide-eyed young woman in a golden dress and a man in a monk's cap and gown this could only be the king "'Hello!' Keith Quick said, with a little less enthusiasm and a little more seriousness than he'd used when his life was on the line. "'My name is Keith Quick, and I'm here to help.' The king gave Keith and Jack a hard stare. "'Where are you from?' the king asked. The correct answer was Nebraska, so Keith said, "'France!' the king looked at Jack. "'Him, too?' He asked. Jack apparently got the message that it would be better to go with the flow on this one and nodded and said he was also from France. You don't sound French, the king commented. But anyhow, how can you help? Did you bring an army? Even if you did, can they beat the forces against us? Keith shook his head. I don't have an army. I'm here to negotiate. A young woman, who was presumably a princess, squeezed the king's arm, but the king ignored her. I don't see why I should negotiate with you, he frowned. The young king treats with no one. What makes you think you can get us out of this? Because, Keith said confidently, we brought the dragon. The king betrayed himself with just the slightest glance skyward before nodding. "'My name is Leo de Grants,' the king said. "'I'd like you to talk to my war council.' "'They were led into the king's keep, "'where they went into a large room in the back "'with a pleasant view of the sea. "'It was equal parts aesthetically pleasing and cold, "'and there was a large wooden table in the centre of the room, "'of the sort that might one day be in the situation room of the White House.' provided that there was a president who had a love of medieval decor. There were four old men sitting around it, each one looking slightly more like an oak tree than the previous one. It occurred to Keith that the reason these gentlemen might be on the War Council was that they might have fought against the Romans. Of course, if they had, they would have lost. As they entered the room, Jack Cassidy tapped Keith Quick on the shoulder. "'Might I have a word?' he asked in English. Keith nodded. "'My Latin's not as good as yours,' Jack admitted. "'But I think that the bold man said that his name was Leo de Grasse.' "'He did, yes.' Jack stole a sideways glance like a Victorian who was about to tell a dirty joke. "'He would be King Leo de Grasse then.' Keith nodded leodegrance appears in the arthur legend he does keith agreed so the young woman who was standing next to him is guinevere yes there was a silence jack finally broke it the table jack said what about it keith asked it's round jack pointed out Keith raised his eyebrows. Probably not a coincidence, he admitted, and with a bit of a swagger, he strode over to the table and sat down. Tell me your story, Keith quick said, and he kicked his feet up on the round table. Last year, Keith Quick had given away the last caffeinated beverage that anyone west of the Afghan plains would taste for several centuries. It was a choice that had probably saved his life, but he was nonetheless regretting it now. We have been over this before, he said, rubbing his temple to ease both his headache and his thinly veiled frustration. The petty disputes about property can be settled later. Keith Quick was starting to understand why people liked war. He had been arguing with old men for what seemed like hours. War was awful, but it did not involve having to convince anybody of anything. Convincing people, or at any rate trying to, was infuriating. It always seemed like you should be able to do it with an impassioned speech full of wisdom and insight into the human condition. In general, this wasn't how it worked. Men, especially medieval men would insist that the sun would come up in the west before they admitted they were wrong. The trick wasn't to try and convince people, the trick was to serve their purposes. If you had something they wanted that they thought they were never going to get, then they started to listen. The disputes in the western lands are not petty disputes, an old Bufty shouted angrily. Exactly who he was, Keith wasn't sure. Most likely he was an advisor of some sort. What was painfully clear was that he was not in charge. No one in charge needed to make this much noise. For generations, this house has held the county of... You need to focus on the big picture. Keith quick interrupted. And the big picture is that the Saxons are coming. They are a bigger threat than the army on your doorstep. He looked over at Jack. We know this because we were there. Jack Cassidy nodded knowingly. Neither of them had really been privy to the inner workings of the people who they had seen in Gaul. But they did know one thing. Without a doubt, the Saxons would be coming. "'History didn't have any uncertainty about that. "'The only real question was when. "'When they come, we will face them,' the old bufty insisted. "'I agree,' Keith said. "'You are going to face them. "'The question is, are you going to face them alone or together?' "'The old bufty was silent for a long time. "'Keith realized that the time had come for the king to speak.' Leo Degrance was a bald man with square shoulders and a youngest-looking face. He had been listening with the flat, serene expression of a man who had faced conflict before and was aware that he would live through it. You believe that the Saxons are coming, Leo Grant said calmly. Do you have any idea when? Leo Degrance had asked the worst possible question. Of course, Keith Quick did not know exactly when the Saxons would be coming. Even if he were a much better historian, he would have been lucky to pin down the decade of the Saxon invasion, much less the day. A millennium and a half separated his old life from this one, and memories faded quickly. Fortunately, Jack Cassidy had an answer. "'The Saxons are pious,' he said with an impressive degree of what sounded like confidence. They will only attack when their god says the time is right. Leoda Grants nodded. What gods do they worship? he asked. Keith Quick and Jack Cassidy stole just the briefest of glances at each other. Keith hoped it wasn't obvious that they didn't know. Who should they say? Jupiter? Thor? Clapton? Any name they might give might be wrong. "'They are worshipping a new god,' Keith stammered. Leota Grants looked surprisingly satisfied with this answer. "'The god of the Hebrews,' he surmised. "'That's right,' Keith said. "'And his son,' Jack added. "'Gods are supposed to last forever,' Leota Grants observed, "'his voice taking on just the slightest trace of weariness.'" "'Isn't it curious that they don't?' "'If gods are supposed to last forever,' Keith said, "'where do new gods come from?' "'The didn't have an answer for this.' "'Kings do not live forever,' he observed. "'But if they are very lucky, kingdoms do. "'That's all I want, you see. "'I don't want to live forever. "'I know I won't. "'It would be foolish to suggest that I could.' "'I don't even want my children to live forever. "'I just want to make sure that the country I live in... "'You want your country to become an empire,' Keith finished for him. "'An empire?' Leota repeated. "'An empire upon which the sun never sets. "'I want this kingdom to last until even the gods have crumbled into dust. "'Can you promise me that?' Jack, Cassidy, and Keith Quick looked at each other. It will, Keith said, if you listen to me. We can do all that. We can do all that and more. Just trust us and go along with our plan. There was a silence. Well, someone please get my daughter, Leota Grant said. Jack Cassidy and Keith Quick had both seen the princess briefly out in the courtyard, and they had both figured out separately who she was. But this was a little different than being confronted with the knowledge that you were actually looking at a woman who had become part of a legend. Neither Jack Cassidy nor Keith Quick knew exactly what they should say. Suddenly words like hello and nice to meet you seemed remarkably complex. May I present the Princess Guinevere. "'Leoda Grant said. "'Keith Quick did not look at her, at least not directly. "'Still, he caught a glimpse of her hair out of the corner of his eye. "'It was red. "'Guinevere had red hair. "'He didn't know. "'Nobody did. "'It's nice to meet you,' Jack said. "'He looked like he wanted to kiss her hand, but he was blocked by the round table.' Guinevere is on the other side of the round table. This was going to take some getting used to. Keith continued to do his best not to stare at her. He felt like he had good reasons for doing so. He had read the stories. He knew that the princess's fate was already sealed. This did not mean that he felt good in any way about what he was about to do. Keith Quick thought of himself as a modern man and by their standards he was. "'He didn't approve of arranged marriages. "'They were not a part of the world as he knew it. "'Unfortunately, sometimes you have to make choices "'based on the situation at hand.' "'Daughter,' Leota said, "'I have been preparing to send my men into battle. "'These gentlemen think that I should send you instead.' "'The young princess bowed her head. "'I know,' Guinevere replied. Her voice was soft but clear, like a bell of a church at Christmas time. You do? This didn't come from Leota Grants, but from Jack Cassidy, who seemed to be trying to light her hair on fire with his eyes. I am a princess, Guinevere said simply. From the time I was old enough to walk, I have been told this day would come. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine that I would pick a husband for myself. "'That may be true,' Leo de replied, "'but I had always hoped that we could put it off a little longer. "'There is always war, and there is always peace, "'and the thing that bridges the gap is renewal and rebirth,' Guinevere replied, almost as if she was quoting a text. "'I love you, father.' But this has never been your area of expertise. Leota Grants nodded and made no other reply. There are a few moments that are more awkward than having your faults pointed out by your children.
1: This man, Arthur,
0: Guinevere said, what is he like? To tell you the truth, I don't know, Leota Grants admitted. I only knew his father, who was by turns both treacherous and cruel. Guinevere had already turned her attention back to the strangers from France, but she nodded to her father politely. Perhaps these gentlemen would care to fill us in. Jack was the first to speak up. Arthur is a good man, he insisted. He will be a good king. Keith detected a nominal amount of patriotism in Jack's voice, and it was easy to understand why... In principle, Keith Quick should have no problem agreeing with him. But somehow the words caught in his throat. Instead of speaking up, he found himself staring at the round table. The round table. He had been sitting at it now for quite some time. It was an impressive-looking piece of furniture. How anyone was going to get it out of this room and over to Camelot, Keith didn't know. Still, it was going to Camelot just the same. The table and Guinevere. You say that he would be a good king, Guinevere said. How can you be sure? They will tell stories about him until they stop writing words on paper, Keith said. Guinevere's pale blue eyes stared into Keith's dark ones. You sound convinced, she said. Keith Quick did his best not to look directly at the princess. I'm saying it because it's true, He turned and looked at Leota I would like to tell you that there is a way out of this that does not involve sacrifice, but I can't. What I can tell you is that there may be a way out that doesn't involve suffering. Leota took a moment to weigh his options. Let's go talk to him, he said. They found their way to the castle ramparts. The view from the castle wall would have been spectacular if there hadn't been an army on the other side. Fortunately for Laodigrants, everyone was still staring up at the sky. Keith guessed that the enemy consisted of perhaps 10,000 men-at-arms. Most seemed to be farmers with spears, but there were a few knights on horseback dressed in helmets and shields. Some of their weaponry dated from the reign of Boudicca by the look of it. Keith supposed that the soldiers were debating the same thing as the people inside of the castle, whether the dragon was a good omen or a bad one. Undoubtedly, some were more concerned with whether the dragon was going to turn them into medieval barbecue than whether his presence meant that Arthur was going to win the day. While the troops were staring up at the sky, Keith, Leota and Jack moved to the center of the ramparts. Arthur Pendragon! The Grants called out. The name rang out over the hills of the country. A man stepped forward. He looked like he was about twenty-five or twenty-six with stringy blonde hair that came down to his chin and a beard that hadn't quite made its way onto his face. He had a smile that showed he still had all his teeth, which seemed to be something of a rarity for the era. Arthur looked up at the sky, stared at the dragon for a moment, and then laughed as if the prospect of being burned alive by dragonflyer was an excellent joke. "'If you want to get my attention,' Arthur shouted up to the ramparts, "'don't you think a letter would have sufficed?' "'The dragon is here to keep the peace and nothing more,' Keith said. "'He poses no threat to those who pose no threat to others.' Arthur laughed. "'Easy for you to say,' Tell me, what do I have to do to get the dragon to fly off and live under a mountain somewhere? Theodograns drew a deep breath. Nothing, he said. You will do nothing. I will declare you high king. That is extraordinarily generous of you, Arthur answered with a disbelieving chuckle. I suppose you are going to give me your castle and fight my battles for me as well. We will provide you with information on an oncoming threat. One that we will need to work together to defeat. Arthur stared up at his opponent. Keith wondered if he knew he was being screwed. Who? Arthur asked. The Saxons, Leodegrance replied. Arthur considered this. The Saxons are coming here. He asked. Jack spoke up. I have traveled the coast all through Brittany looking for safe passage across the channel, he replied. The Saxons are preparing for an invasion. I have seen their troops all up and down the coast. Their numbers are vast. I can give you details on their ships and their movements. We can help you prepare for the attack. It was a good offer, and Arthur knew it. Arthur could clear out both the dragon and Leodegrance without losing a single soldier, and could go on to prepare for the Saxons. Leodegrance drew a deep breath. "'I will knight you myself,' he said. "'My daughter has agreed to marry you.' Arthur drew a deep breath and let out a great belly laugh." Ha 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 ha. That's funny, he said. I don't remember asking her to marry me. Leotogrant stole just the tiniest glance at his daughter. She was waiting, just out of sight, in an open door at the end of the ramparts. She had a worried look in her eyes and bit her lip expectantly. It was clear from the expression on her face that she wasn't thinking about the prospect of marrying a stranger. She was worried about her father. "'Your father and I were allies once,' Leo de continued. "'The match will make you high king without a drop of bloodshed "'and allow us to work together to defeat the oncoming threat. "'Those are my terms. Do you agree?' Arthur sheathed the sword that he was holding." It was undoubtedly a gesture of acquiescence, but nonetheless the words had to be said. "'Let me ask you something,' he said, and his voice took on a direct quality that seemed to imply that he was not speaking as a king, but as a man. "'Is she beautiful?' Leota Grantz didn't answer. Keith Quick turned and looked at the princess. "'She's the most beautiful woman I have ever seen,' Keith Quick said." And I have been to the beginnings and the ends of the earth. Guinevere looked at him and rolled her eyes. She was sure that he was kidding. He repressed an irresponsible smile. The deal had been set and everyone knew it. It would help Arthur, but Leota Grants was the clear winner. If he could not be the king, at least he would be a kingmaker and he would get out of the siege that would have hurt his people. Arthur would solidify his claim to the throne and be given an advantage in a war he hadn't known was coming. Also, for what it was worth, the dragon wouldn't eat him, which had to be on the new king's mind, no matter how much Keith reassured him. It was a fair offer, but even so, Arthur was a king, and kings sometimes have a habit of making up their own minds, so the words needed to be said. Open the gates, Arthur answered. Five minutes later, they were all in the courtyard, friend and foe alike. Some, it had to be said, were obviously happier about a peace deal than others. Arthur seemed to be the most pleased of everyone, beaming at the crowd like the lover at the end of a Shakespearean comedy. Guinevere was clearly doing her best to act like a blushing bride, but there was a steel quality to the glint in her eyes. Leo Degrance had done his best to put on a tight-lipped smile, but no other part of his body looked relaxed. The assembled crowd and the incoming soldiers seemed to be relieved, with both sides looking grateful that no one was going to die today. Both King's lieutenants stared at each other darkly with looks that did little to disperse any feelings of hostility. Keith Quick leaned against the castle wall, a comical smirk on his face. He looked up at the sky Cupping his hands with his mouth He let out a large yell The dragon's wings fluttered And it went into a nosedive Any feelings of peace And prosperity were overwhelmed As the dragon came fluttering down Creating a rush of air in the courtyard The dragon rested on top Of one of the castle's turrets And surveyed the assembled crowd It had narrowed its eyes Making it look like a meaner creature Than Keith Quick knew it to be Keith realized that the dragon was surveying the crowd. He's looking for someone, Keith thought, someone he recognizes. I am the great green dragon of the Golden West, the dragon interjected in a voice that could probably be heard in Wales. Years ago, I attacked Queen Jocelyn in the defeat of the Black Knight. I have returned from the Far East to be by her side. There was a pause, and when the dragon spoke again, his voice sounded small, almost pathetic. Can anyone tell me where she is? he asked. The assembled crowd looked at each other. Leotograss spoke. Jocelyn was the, the name of the old queen, he said. Is that who you're looking for? The old queen, the dragon repeated shakily. Yes, that must be her. Leota Grants and Arthur exchanged looks. It looked like they were both wondering if the dragon was going to scorch them for telling him what happened. She was my grandmother, Arthur said. The dragon said nothing. Keith, who had known the dragon for a year now, realized that Arthur had just caught the dragon up on several decades of his life and given him the worst possible news. He had done it all with a single word, was. Jocelyn was Arthur's grandmother. She wasn't anymore. The dragon hung his head low. Tell me, he said. Tell me about her. Arthur's carefree attitude disappeared and he raised his eyebrows. I never knew her, she... "'Died when I was just a young boy,' he admitted. "'The dragon nodded. "'Did she have a good life?' "'I expect so,' Arthur shrugged. "'Her reign was regarded as a period of benevolence and prosperity. "'For the first time in what must have been a very long time, the dragon looked small.' "'Humans,' he said simply. "'Your lives are so short.' "'Keith could not reach the dragon "'from where he was standing, which pained him. "'My friend,' he said, and then trailed off. "'He didn't know what to say. "'There are some things which no amount of talking will ever heal.' "'She was a gentle lady,' Leota added with a nod "'that implied that he knew more than Arthur. "'She lived to see three-score years and was beloved by her people.' "'Your lives are so short,' the dragon said again. "'He shook his head and looked skyward. "'I lost track of time.' "'Wait!' Keith shouted, but it was too late. "'The dragon spread its wings and took off like a shot. "'In less than a minute, the last dragon in Britain flew off to the east, "'presumably never to return. "'This might have seemed like the beginning of great things for Jack Cassidy and Keith Wick.' After all, they had met King Arthur and had sat at the round table. But in a cruel twist of fate, things didn't happen the way that you might have expected. The reason why was something that Keith didn't pick up on, and he would have found a little strange, even if he had. It was Leodegrance. The old king would never forgive Keith and Jack for giving away his daughter so quickly. Never mind that he had given his approval, that it was inevitable, and that Jack had almost nothing to do with it. Leo understood that Keith Quick had negotiated a peace that he never could, and he didn't care. He used his influence to make sure that Keith and Jack were persona non grata at court for at least as long as he was alive. For Jack and Keith, the next three years would be marked by struggle, desperation, and hardship as they slowly sank in the world around them. It was a pity, because there was a time when Keith Quick was young, happy, and in love. Hi, my name is David McLean, and I'm the creator of this podcast. What you've been listening to is something I created to help me work out my next book. If you like what you've heard, I can tell you this is a sequel to another book called The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum, as well as the sequel to a book called Dragon Bait, both of which I wrote. If you like this, you might want to check those out. That would be great if you'd like to like and subscribe and do whatever people do leave a review that's fine too i am still way too chicken to read the reviews these days but who knows maybe one day i won't be anyway i just wanted to say thanks for listening next week uh, we are going to hear from keith's daughter helen again who we heard from in episode one and we may also see a tournament thanks have a good day